Hey everyone, I'm Gracie and welcome to Grace of a Military Child podcast. The world should know how unique military children are. We may look like normal children on the outside, but we go through some pretty extraordinary circumstances that shape us to the leaders we are today. That is the sole purpose of this podcast, to share our stories to the world. Well, hi, Kelly. Welcome on. How are you? Hi, Grace. Thank you so much for having me. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. So your dad was in the military, right? He was. He was uh, a pilot in the Army for most of my life, my childhood. Awesome. Were you born into the military life? I was born at Madigan Hospital up at Fort Lewis in Washington, My dad had been in the Army for several years, actually, at that point, Um, and that's where he and my mom were stationed at the time. Cool. Um, Did you attend a lot of schools on the military bases then? You know, we lived abroad for a while, and when I was abroad, I attended the military on-base schools, the DOD schools. Um, When we were in the United States, I mostly was um, in off-base, like just regular schools, but uh, we lived in Germany for a couple of years, a few different times. And so when I was over there, I was in the DOD schools. Yeah, for sure. Did you like prefer doing uh, public schools when you were here or did you prefer the military schools? You know, the the difference to me in those two is how accepting people are of a military lifestyle. And it was mm-hmm. much easier to sort of fit in and to acclimate and to make friends in the DOD schools because everybody was in the same boat. You know, half of the students would swap out every summer and you'd move. And when you'd show up in the fall, some of your friends were there. Some of them weren't there. You were in, you were the new kid in a new, in a new place. It didn't really matter. Um Versus the public school, you'd show up as the new kid in the fall with people that had gone to school for 10 years together and knew everything about each other and all of the drama and, you know, everything that comes along with being a kid that has been in the same environment for a long time. Um, So I think there, you know, there's a lot of value in that, but I think there's, you know, it's definitely different. I think I preferred the DOD schools a little bit more. Um, but it could also be because I was in Germany. So it's a little bit more like, <laughs> fun location than, yeah. than, you know, being in some busy city somewhere in the U.S. But um, right. yeah, just different, very different. Yeah. And I definitely agree that the the DOD round schools are much more accepting because they're used to it. They're used to moving They're, I mean, you know, even going to Germany, like, you don't know what to expect in a new country even like. Right. I was definitely in high school before I realized that everybody didn't just take off to the Alps for a week of skiing. (laughs) I just, that's what we did every year. It's what my friends did every year. I didn't really know that there were people that didn't do that. (laughs) I didn't know that people didn't shop at the commissary until I think my freshman year in high school. And we were at the local grocery store and this woman in front of us had two carts full of groceries. And I said to my mom, like, why would she buy all of that stuff here? And my mom says, you know, well, where else is she going to get her groceries? I'm like, the commissary, obviously. (laughs) And she's like, not everyone can shop there. But again, it's just it's context. That's all I had ever known. I didn't realize that 
it was in the military bubble. It was just my life and everybody shopped at the commissary. So (laughs) there were a few things that I picked up on probably a little later than I maybe should have just because it just was so normal. Yeah. And that's like, you know, when you go to get your groceries, you go to the commissary. When you need like clothes, you go to the PX. Like you have these uh, places that you constantly go and that's all you know as you know the military child and then you're like oh this isn't the like open to the whole world this isn't a public place it's our whole world and I, yeah. I'm gonna age myself a little bit here but before people did online shopping all the time we would mm-hmm. wait when we lived overseas for like the JCPenney's catalog to come or the Macy's catalog to come. And then it was a race like with your siblings to flip through the catalog and circle all the things you wanted before they did or circle what color you wanted. And then you could tell each season when that magazine came and then when everybody's clothes came because everybody at school was shopping either at the PX or in the same catalogs that, you know, showed up (laughs) in the mail on base. And, but there wasn't, you know, you didn't have Amazon at your disposal or, you know, click a couple of buttons and get whatever you want from anywhere in the world. Like that's a few years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And like even technology is just, you know, expanding that. And even with the pandemic coming, like, you know, we're just starting to do like grocery shopping online and all that sort of things. Right. Technology has come, you know, so far, I think it has closed the gap a lot, particularly in the military world with deployments Mm -hmm. and things like that. Like we used to schedule with my dad, on a phone call when the next time he thought he'd be able to make another phone call. Like you didn't have email, you didn't have FaceTime, you didn't have all of that stuff at your disposal. So, you know, then you'd have to wait. Like, and if something came up to like go and do something fun with your friends, it was like, no, you're going to wait for this phone call from your dad for, you know, five minutes a week that you're going to get to talk to him before you can go out and play or right. you know, go further than the phone can reach. You didn't have cell phones back then. I'm really making myself sound old. <laughs> but you, know, you just didn't have, you were tethered a little bit more if you wanted to communicate. You didn't have the, you know, easy option. We used to have dial-up internet in Germany where you would get online, download all your email, get off, reply to everything, get on, send it, and then get back off. Like, and that was, <laughs> you know, that was at the time when my dad was deployed, like a great way to communicate because it was new. Now yeah. it's like you can FaceTime, you can, anything that's available on Wi-Fi is at your fingertips, which I think is, is great and makes such a difference in terms of staying connected while people are, you know, deployed or on different, you know, time zones and parts of the world and all of that kind of stuff. Cause it's all still happening. Yeah. And you can, you know, stay up to date more with, you know, the, your parent that's deployed or, you know, even if they're just gone for a month, like on training, like you can stay in so much better contact. And I mean, even like now when I was growing up and dad was joining and all of that, I was like 2010. So like 10 years ago. And It's even grown since then, for sure. Absolutely. In a good way. Yes, for sure. You know, but it's it's different. It's definitely very generational. I have one of my sisters is 11 years younger than I am. And so my experience with a military child with multiple deployments from my dad is much different than hers because he retired at almost 30 years when she was nine years old. And so, you know, for her, she started in 
pre-K and went all the way through high school with the same kids, like a regular, yeah. regular public school, totally different world. You know, my husband now is also a veteran and he's retired and we just had a baby and she's going to grow up. Her her dad will always be a retired soldier, but she's not going to move and he's not going to deploy while, you know, she's growing up. So, you know, it's just, there's a whole circle out there of, of, you know, who, who experiences what, and it's very different. Yeah. It's very different for each person and the experiences. And even me and my sister, we're only, you know, a year apart, but you know, I experienced things that she didn't experience. And, you know, even if that was inside the classroom or, you know, I mean, just getting these different opportunities too, it's so different. Right, right. So did you, you mentioned Germany, but where else did you live? So Washington State, uh, Missouri, Rhode Island, four different places in Germany. We've been in and out of Virginia. My dad had several duty stations in Virginia, but we always sort of had the same home base at the same house. Um, my mom and my sister and I lived with my grandparents for a little while in um, in Pennsylvania while my dad was deployed somewhere at the time. Um, so, you know, a little bit of like extra back and forth. So, you know, we've had our fair share of of packing up and moving out and scrubbing, yeah. you know, dishwashers with a toothbrush to clear housing <laughs> and, you know, all that fun stuff. Yes, for sure. Did you have a favorite place that you lived or somewhere that you call home? So I call Northern Virginia home where my parents okay. still are right now. And so my dad has had, he was at the Pentagon. He was at Fort Belvoir for a couple different jobs. He was in just across the street from the Pentagon. Um, so he's had several duty stations that allowed us to be in that house. And we left there and went to Germany and came back. But if I'm going to claim anywhere as being home, it's Northern Virginia. And my parents are still there. And so as long as they're there, I'll still say it's home. If people ask where I'm from, my answer usually is the Army. But you know, yeah. <laughs> if I have to pick a location, it's that that greater D.C., Northern Virginia area. Yeah. It's so hard to answer the question of where are you from? Mm-hmm. Because even living in just, you know, the three states I've lived, it's like, well, you have a piece of each place inside of you. Mm -hmm. And then some because, you know, you make such close relationships with people that are from other places and you go and you visit and, you know, then you get to be an adult. And it's like I have friends all over the world that I have met in various parts and points of my life that, you know, they were just as transient as I was and off they go and you may not see them for 10 years. And then it's like no time has ever passed. And yeah, it's just a very it can be a very forgiving world where people just they understand that life happens and they don't ask any questions when it circles back around to them. You know, it's just like, yeah, right. here we are, like doing exactly yeah. the same thing 10 years later. Like, how's it going? Like nothing ever changed. <laughs> exactly. And you know, it's gotten so much easier, again, to stay in contact with those people because I'm sure, like, you meet, met these friends in Germany and then you're back in the States and you really didn't have much contact with them because technology is still evolving at the time. Right, right. And I think um, you said, where's the favorite place? When I was growing up, I would have said this Northern Virginia where my parents still are was my favorite place. Now yeah. that I'm an adult looking back, my favorite place was Germany. 
Like what sure. a cool I and my parents said it all my life. You'll appreciate this so much someday. But at the time, <laughs> I don't want to go to another castle. I don't want to see another the Berlin Wall. I don't want to see all this like history stuff. Yeah. I want to play with my friends that I just made. But right. now as an adult, I look back and I'm like, that was really cool. Like that's something I wish I could give my daughter now, you know, and, and we'll go and I'll take her and we'll be over there and um and so I have a just a different appreciation for how cool that was, that that's probably my favorite thing. But in the moment growing up, being in Northern Virginia was cool because that's where my my greatest friends were. And that was where I was kind of just at the age where I got to do cool things and I was in good sports and it was good schools and all of those kinds of things that provided all of those opportunities was there. And so in that moment, that's where I wanted to be. That was my favorite. Yeah. There's so many opportunities everywhere, and it's so hard to find them, especially when you're moving, like, you know, so often. Yeah, yeah. And to, you know, stay there and put roots down and and learn, you know, learn from a coach for a long time or, mm-hmm. you know, be become part of something like that. Like, sometimes you just don't get that. You're moving so often. Yeah. Yeah, it just – it's – it's just a different world. It's a different world. And it's, you have to appreciate it. And my parents, I admit all the time, were 100% correct. I appreciate it so much more <laughs> as an adult than I did as a kid. They were absolutely right about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, parents are always, you know, right in the long run. <laughs> tend to have that little ability there for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in Germany, you said you went to the castles, you went skiing. Did you have a favorite activity that you always constantly wanted? Skiing, yeah. Hands down. And and I've skied since I was itty bitty. You know, I was more stable in my ski boots. My dad was on the ski patrol over there. And so as soon as we could ski, off we all went. And and so I still ski. And I've taught adaptive skiing for a lot of years. And I just Nothing compares to those mountains and to being over there and and to just the ease of being able to do it. But it's just there's something, you know, so peaceful about being out there. I did an internship um, when I was in physical therapy school at uh, Landstuhl Military Base, which is where when people are injured in Iraq and Afghanistan, it's where they go first before they come back to the United States. And I... um, with a couple of the docs I was working with, we went one weekend. It happened to be Easter weekend um, in April. And my dad called me and I was on the chairlift on my way to the top. And he was like, well, you didn't go to church today. And I said, no. <laughs> I was like, I did. I did say a prayer and thank God for eight inches of fresh powder today. <laughs> but it just, you know, like that just was so easy to be able to just, you know, pop down and but skiing. And I think that's part of why it's so you know, ingrained as such a love of mine is that I was 100% spoiled with, you know, where I was able to do that so easily that, you know, some of these, particularly in Virginia, mountains in Virginia are not the same thing. But if that's all you've ever known, that's great. And you love it. So, you know, when you start with the best in the world, it's kind of hard to, to give that up. And so, you know, it just really becomes something that's very special for sure. Yeah. And the memories, like family memories and, you know, even going back and. When my dad was deployed, the the wives would take all the kids and we would go and we would, 
you know, and it, like I said, it was normal, but you were put, sometimes you would go and you would be put in like a ski school class. And I remember the first year I was put in my mom's ski school class because my mom, both my parents are just phenomenal skiers. And so to be put on a, on a ability level with my mom, I thought I was just the coolest thing in the world. And then, you know, at the end of the week, there's a race and I, and I beat my mom because she's a beautiful, very technical skier, but at, you know, 13 years old or whatever I was, 15 years old, I was all about going faster than that. And so yeah. she might have looked much prettier doing it. But to beat my mom, it was like, that was the phone call to my dad at the end, wherever he was. It was like, how was your week? I'm like, I beat mom in skiing. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. <laughs> yeah. And so how was it transitioning out of the military and like graduating high school and moving on to more or less your life? It, um, for me, it was not difficult because I never really let it go. I, I was very lucky. I went to high school, all four years of high school in the same place because my dad at that point made the decision to get out and to not move my family back overseas at that sort of critical point in my life. Um, So I went to college in Virginia. I went to Virginia Tech, did my four years there. I had always known I wanted to be a physical therapist. And so I went straight into physical therapy school. And on the first day, you write yourself a letter of like, where do you think you'll be in four years or five years? And I said, in a perfect world, I would work for the military and and treat their amputees because I had met an amputee skier years and years before. And I just thought that was like just such a challenge and such a fascinating from a medical standpoint and ability standpoint, such a fun thing to do. And so I went to PT school. I did all of my full-time internships with the military. I did one at Quantico Marine Base, the Longstuhl Hospital in Germany, and then at Walter Reed. And so when I finished, I stayed at Walter Reed as a full-time employee. And so my life has always been very ingrained in either as a military child or then in turn serving as a civilian. in my adult life. And so I just, I never totally let it all the way go. So I didn't have to finish that transition, but it just, it was such a part of who I was. And it was such a population of people that I had been taught to just admire so much and to, you know, I just was so honored to be able to continue to be a part of that world and to take care of you know, my childhood heroes, some of them. And so, you know, some of them, once you get to know them, it's like, oh, maybe I don't have to give you that title, but you know, they're (laughs) they're great. And at the end of the day, like somebody that's willing to make that kind of a sacrifice for a total stranger, like, I don't care how much of a jerk you might be to somebody else. Like, you know, those people just deserve so much respect. And that was just how I was raised. And so when it came back to you know, giving back and what am I going to do with my life? It's like, there just was no question. Like that's the world I'm going to be in and I'm going to give them whatever I can. And so I've been lucky in that sense. Um, it, it is hard to interact with other people that have not had that because they don't understand moving or, you know, scrubbing, a a dishwasher with a toothbrush to clean housing or, you know, what it's like to say goodbye to friends when you have to move and, or see you later because you don't believe in goodbyes or, you know, just all of those sorts of things that you learn as a military child in terms of life skills and people skills. And then you run in as an adult, you run into people that just don't have those. And it's like, oh, you needed to move a little bit in your life. (laughs) You needed to pick these skills up. These are not just common things that everybody has. And um, 
You know, so there are, you kind of, I, I managed to avoid it, but I, there are lots of people that I know that have struggled um, with that transition and then, you know, into a, essentially a fully civilian life like that. That's just very different. It is. And, you know, being able to even be in the same high school for four years is really incredible because not everyone gets that. And then that also makes the transition so much easier to you kind of know where you want to go to school. Most of the time you want to stay local. Um, and then, you know, you have these friends, you have these connections that you're able to build and then you don't have to, you know, necessarily let it go as much. Right. And they set you up for success, you know, cause yeah. I, so I graduated from high school in Northern Virginia and then went to Virginia Tech. So I was about four hours away. Um, my sister at the time, my, so I have two sisters, but the youngest one was in first grade when I was applying to college and my parents were residents of Florida because that's a very common place for the military to become <laughs> permanent residents. And my yes. grandparents were down there at the time. And so if I wanted in-state tuition, I had been looking in Florida and I didn't want to leave my youngest sister and be that far away from her at, you know, seven and eight years old. And so for me, it was, okay, I want to go here. I obviously fell in love with with tech, and that was where I was supposed to be, and it provided me an, an enormous number of opportunities. But I was. I was within driving distance of where my parents were, but I was the one who could show up at the dorm. I knew my roommate, but we didn't know anybody else on the hall, and it was like, I know how to do this. Like I know how to walk down the hall and make friends with all of these strangers because this has been my life, whereas my roommate – had never moved. And um, my, my roommate, my freshman year, her dad was Navy. But, you know, these some of these people that I was living on the hall with, like they, that's just not something they had ever done, like stepped out of their comfort zone and into a world where all of these people are new. And I was like, I know how to do this. This is a military yeah. skill that I now have. <laughs> and even it's so hard to just to say, to start a conversation and be like, hi, you know, where are you from? Especially in college because everyone's from different places most of the time. But being able to start those conversations is really hard. And that is a life skill that the military teaches you for sure. Absolutely. And I wouldn't trade that skill for anything in the world. No. <laughs> in, well into no. my adult life now, like one of the most valuable skills that I got yes. from the military, hands down. Yeah. And then, you know, being able to interact with people that are, you know, different from you because we all lead these different lives. And as the military, you know, you have to be able to adapt to the lives that somebody else is living because, you know, you could have just moved there. But, you know, a couple of weeks later, they just got orders to move. Right. Right. Yep. Uh, over and over and over and over, you know, how often yeah. does that happen? And it's just, <laughs> you know, you just start to not blink an eye at it. It's like, yeah, okay. My dad got orders like, oh, cool. Where are you going? <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> maybe we'll go there next. Like maybe we'll see yeah. you, you know, next time. Um, yeah. Yeah. Definitely a, a lifestyle, a way of life for sure. Yes. So when did you know that you wanted to do physical therapy? Oh man, this is such a, tough question for other people to understand. I don't ever legitimately remember wanting to do anything else. Like okay. for as long yeah. as I can remember, I love to help people. 
I love the medical world. Like I'm a very like science brained kind of person. And I just, it seemed like the perfect fit for as long as I can remember. So my freshman year in high school, I started working in a PT clinic and I just never quit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> never. And that's, that's awesome because a lot of people, you know, and I find it a lot in the military life too, where you don't know what you want to do because you have these so many different experiences that you're like, oh, well, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. Like you have the world at your fingertips. You do. And you recognize yeah. that, you know, everybody does, but not everybody yeah. recognizes that, you know, you could literally do anything anywhere and move and it would be fine. And it's not as scary as some people think, but I was the only one of my friends who started college and finished college under the same major with the same plan for my life. And, you know, all of those things. My roommate changed her major, I think, three times in our first year. Like, wow. you know, I have friends who have gone back to school after graduating more than once because they thought they wanted to do something different. And so, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's rare. It is definitely rare to be so sure that you know, you're doing what you want to be doing. I did um my first full-time or my second full-time internship. I was at the Lonsdale Hospital in Germany. And I remember treating a patient um, who just had like open wounds everywhere, very, very severely wounded and, and, you know, smiled and said, yes, ma'am, to me through the whole evaluation that I was doing. And I walked out of that room with my heart so broken for this person. But then at the same time, like in, in having a conversation with my boss afterwards, it was like, I am exactly where I'm supposed to be doing exactly yeah. what I was meant to do with my life. And there was no looking back at that point. Like maybe I'll work in a civilian clinic. Maybe. I'll, nope. Done. This is what I'm doing. <laughs> this is like, this is it. And there, and that was it. Like there was never any looking back and you know, you, you just find what you're passionate about. And for me to be familiar with that world already and to have an appreciation of that, I mean, right down to the frustrations of the TRICARE system, you know, where you're yeah. waiting for a referral to be seen wherever. Like, <laughs> you know, you lived that. You get that. It's a world that you understand. And so to me, it makes more sense than anything on the outside world, you know, having to to deal with insurance companies or whatever. It's like, I don't know what any of that is. I never did that at all my whole life. So... <laughs> You know, you just, um, yeah, there just never was a question to do something yeah. else. How did you get the internships that, you know, worked wor more with the military side? So some of it was just, they were already options and I just gravitated towards those and I, and I picked them. The one in Germany was, um, I was lucky. <laughs> I... <laughs> My dad knew someone that was working at the hospital so that I could like I had a human to be in contact with over there to work with, to set up the like to put me in touch with this person, that person and this person. But you needed a person to start with. And so my dad was still active duty at the time um, and he knew somebody over there. And so it took until less than a month before I was supposed to be over there for the final papers to get signed. Um, and I had no backup plan. If it was going to fall yeah. through, I was in big trouble because in my mind, I was going like I was going. We were doing this and I had no other plan, um, <laughs> but it worked out. So some of it, some of it was just pure dumb luck. Some of it was really hard work and determination. And 
to not accept no as the answer and, you know, which are all things that the military teaches you in terms not to not accept no, that's maybe not the right way to put it, but you know, it was like, this is my dream. This is what I want to do. And I can make a difference in this world and I'm going to figure out how to do it. And you just keep charging towards that. And I, I got lucky. And then with Walter Reed, I, the internship I got through, obviously through my school, but then to stay on and work full time after that was one of those pure moments of the stars aligned. There were two women that were working right as I was finishing that wanted to both go part time to fill one position, which opened up another position. And I had essentially just interviewed for, you know, three months while I was doing an internship with them. And so I was able just to sort of slip right in there and come back just a couple months later and and then I I was there for seven years. I left in 2010 to come do what I'm doing now and work for a nonprofit in the military community. So, um, you know, it's just sometimes fate really is a thing and it just kind of puts yeah. you in the right spot at the right time. Yeah. And that's totally true. And, you know, once you get this dream that you have, you won't stop working until you get you know, you, until you get the fulfillment that you accomplished it. And that is definitely something that the military instills in you because, you know, these people are out there fighting for the country and that's their dream. That's their goal. And they won't stop until, you know, they have to, they'll go the absolute farthest they can to make sure it happens. Right. And I had always been told, you know, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. You know, yeah. My job, particularly at Walter Reed, um, back in the years of 2010, 11, 12, like were unbelievably busy and maybe to an outside person looking in because I got asked a lot, like, is that really hard? And it was like, are you kidding me? Like, this is the greatest job. Like, everybody can't have a bad day on the same day. And I get to, like, give these people their life back. Like, I will be forever grateful for that opportunity. It was such a privilege to be able to do that that I don't know. And I'll never have a job like that again. You know, I have a really cool job right now, but it's different. And it's, um, I think I had a different appreciation for that job at the time to, to be working there and in that clinic that... And it, it came from my background of like, I could look at the spouse or the kid or the whoever. And it's like, I, like, I know, I know what that life is like. Like I'm a military kid too. I'm a, you know, you just yeah. have a different level of understanding for them, which I think just made me more valuable in the clinic to them to understand that part of their life too, of knowing that they were having, trying to clear housing on the back end while their significant other was, you know, here in a hospital bed and what are they doing and how are they coordinating household goods and all of that, like like drama on the other side that is so much less important than this person, you know, your loved one being injured in front of you. But you know, you just, you get it and you know that like, that's what's happening on the, on their outside of their world. So, um, yeah, really special for sure. Yeah. And, you know, because I experienced the child side of it being in the injured soldier, you know, I wasn't there for that moment, but I remember like hearing about it and you know, the pictures of dad taking his first steps again. And that is such a special moment that, you know, wouldn't be possible if it weren't for people like you who 
that's what you strive for. It's for sure. It's what we strive for. And, you know, as clinicians and providers that get to be in that role, like that's our dream come true is to watch somebody be able to do that. But we treat so many patients and they all reach different goals, but we're (laughs) doing the same thing. So there's a patient aspect of it. You know, people are like, oh, thank you so much for what you did. And it's like, I can teach you how to walk till I'm blue in the face. And if you don't decide you want to put the work in and do it on your own and have your own sort of motivation, then what am I doing? You know, like, yeah, which is such a it's a teamwork thing for sure to be able to, you know, find someone's motivation and capitalize on that to make them as successful as they can be to recognize like I'm sure I think Alicia was your dad's PT, right? And so, you know, to recognize in your dad that, you know, his wife and his girls were his motivation and he wants to, you know, walk you down the aisle someday and be there for your graduations and, you know, all of these life moments, like to, to be able to wrap that into somebody's recovery and to, you know, get them going, like there's no greater gift than being able to do that. It's so fun. Yeah. <laughs> yes, for sure. So how did you get involved with the Travis Mills Foundation where you're working now? So Travis Mills is a quadruple amputee who came through the clinic at Walter Reed and was just a bigger than life personality. And so he was not my patient on a regular basis. I worked with him some, but you know, you just get to know him and Kelsey and he was starting this sure. foundation. And as it sort of evolved they were going to need somebody to come up here and be the program director and at the time the climate at Walter Reed was shifting there were not as many people coming in that were injured which was a great problem to have you know when I took the job at Walter Reed I said I had two or three years and I'm out of here like it'll be fine and then seven years later I was like I have to figure out what's going to be next like And then this opportunity came to come up here and to be the program director. Um, So we offer a fully accessible retreat for post 9-11 physically wounded veterans. um, And we actually have a a PTSD program now as well. Um, But that to me, I just felt such a tug on my heartstrings of this is the next step in their recovery and their rehab. And since I went from being with them in Germany to being with them at Walter Reed, that this just felt like the perfect next stepping stone that also allowed me the quality of life that I wanted. I didn't want to be a part of, you know, the DC rat race of long commutes and terrible traffic and lots of people. And, you know, I'm not a big city person and that's about as big of a city as, you know, you could ask for. And so there was You just needed, I needed a shift and sort of a a better life balance as things at the hospital calmed down. And, and so it it had to be different. It wasn't going to be full-time clinical work somewhere because it wasn't going to be the same. And no, Travis just kept popping in with this opportunity. And, um, my husband was all for it. He was like, let's go to Maine, let's do this. And it just felt like the right next step and the right time. And, I knew if I didn't take that job that somebody else was going to do it and they were never going to let it go. And it has been perfect. Life after Walter yeah. Reed has been great. And, you know, we're, we get to live in Maine now and um, my husband is retired and we have a seven-month-old baby girl and it's just, you know, life is good. So did you ever feel that 
you know, you had to completely drop physical therapy to do this? Or did you feel that you could kind of sort of incorporate it in with the activities? Um, yes, I do. (laughs) So I am not on staff at the retreat as a physical therapist, but physical therapy is involved in everything I do. Every time I adapt equipment for somebody or get somebody set up on something or make an adaptation and make something more accessible at the retreat, it's all physical therapy brain always. And it's the best kind because you don't have to do notes. You don't have to deal with insurance. It's just... You don't have to even fight with your patients because they don't understand why it's important. It's like, hey, let me show you how to go down this ramp a little bit easier. And then they do it. And then that's what they do in their life now. And so it's like all the greatest parts of PT. I do still work. I'm a contractor at the VA and I staff their amputee clinic over there. So I am in the clinic still just a little bit um, a couple of times a month. And then I teach physical therapy at a couple of different schools. Um, So I do some anatomy for some OT students. And then I do some... um, prosthetics and orthotics classes as well, both at a school in Virginia and another one up here in Maine. So I do still keep my hand in it as much as I can, um, because particularly in the amputee world, because that's a very specific skill. And in, you know, seven plus years at Walter Reed, you see far more amputees and high, high level amputees than most PTs ever see in their career. And so that's a skill set that I try as much as possible to be able to share and teach and educate others to then hopefully benefit another patient if they come across them at some point in their career. So I didn't, it was a little hard to swallow in the very beginning, but it was my way of not feeling like I was totally giving it up was to be able to still keep my fingers sort of interlaced as much as I could, um, in that world. So I haven't totally let it go yet. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, Sorry if you hear Sergeant, the doorbell just rang. <laughs> um, yes, but it's important to, you know, more or less leave your legacy in it because you're not only, you not only helped so many people at Walter Reed and in Longstool, but you're now teaching, you know, others how to handle these situations that you have to basically experience to know how it goes. Right, right. And so, you know, my hope is that someday some student that I've had will encounter an amputee and demand more from them than than they would have in the past and to know that their quality of life can be just as good and that they could be an asset to that patient and an advocate for that patient. And then, you know, if that happens once or twice, then then it's all worth it. And I did my job. And for every patient that I've had, you know, that has gone on to do something they didn't think they could do because I voluntold them to do something while they were in (laughs) rehab or, you know, it's just I don't know how anybody ever gets tired of that, you know, or could ever take that for granted. It's just such a special thing to be able to be a part of where, you know, I've done an interview before where it's like. I have met many of my patients there at what most of them would argue is their lowest point in their life, but you get to be with them long enough to watch them just become whatever they want to be, whoever they want to be. They go on to have families and finish college and, you know, just all the achieve whatever dreams they want, like, you know, to have even the smallest role in that just like just warms your heart. Yeah, I'm sure. And 
you know, we are so thankful for, you know, you and Alicia and all these other people that have helped, uh, you know, us along the way, because I mean, even though most of the time you guys won't take credit for what you've done, you know, we're so thankful that, you know, we have, you know, I have my dad again, like, I wouldn't have had that because, you know, it was a struggle sometimes just to even, you know, get out of bed and he'll say it like we were his motivation the whole entire time. But, you know, you guys had a huge part in it, too. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) I'm in a licious camp for that one, though. Like, you know, just you have to. There's a lot of individual effort that goes into that on the patient's part and and sometimes unknowingly from the kids like Travis is a quad amputee that I work for up here and you know he'll tell you time and time again like he didn't know if he'd be able to be the dad that Chloe deserved she was only a few months old when he was injured like was he going to be able to be the dad was he going to be able to be the father the you know husband that he wanted to be and it's like sometimes as the provider you take those hopes and dreams and you just hold them and you protect those visions for your patient and you let them struggle and you let them get through what they're getting through. And then when they're ready, then you give them back. You're like, okay, yeah. you're in a better place now. Like you want to be that nurse that you were before. You want to be, you want to redeploy. You want to be a dad. You want to walk down the aisle. You want to stand to brush your teeth. Maybe your goal is to walk to the mailbox at the end of the driveway. Like, I don't care what your goal is. It's mine too now. Like I don't need everybody to be a marathon runner when they're done. Like I've checked that box, but I wouldn't call myself a marathon runner. I don't (laughs) don't really feel the need to continue to do that with my life, (laughs) but everybody's got their own thing. And so it's just, um, you know, you, the military really teaches you to be able to sort of adapt to whatever that situation is. And I think it serves people well, particularly after injury. Sometimes it can do just the opposite because you're so used to that camaraderie and to have that family and all of those people around you all the time. And then it can be taken away either from retirement or transitioning out or injury or whatever it is. And so sometimes it has the opposite effect for people and it takes them a while to sort of come around and to learn. And, you know, that's a different journey all its own. But hopefully people have been able to pick up the tools along the way to, you know, sort of eventually learn to thrive in that. Uh, environment as well yes for sure and it's such a special thing to you know see those people achieve those goals and you know even be as part of that transition process of helping you know get from point a to point b and most people do end up having to retire depending on the significance of their injury but you know you have to realize that it's not going to be easy. You know, you have to still, your life's not over just because, you know, you are an amputee now or, you know, whatever your injuries are. And, you know, you still have to, you know, try and make it work. Right. I think it's important to to recognize that, particularly with injured service members, that, that one person might have those physical wounds, but that whole family unit is impacted. You know, you're... Yes. When you guys go and travel, like let's say Disney World, like that looks a little bit different than it did before your dad was injured. There's a little more planning. There's a little more breaks. There's a little bit more, you know, just 
things take a little longer, you're a little more limited, like it just looks a little bit different. And kids pick up on that. You know, we used to call them Matsy-isms. So the clinic was the Matsy, the Military Advanced Training Center. And I remember this little girl standing, we would line up all the legs along one wall before, um, before patients were allowed to take their legs home, like when they were just getting them and learning. And so this little girl couldn't have been more than like three is pacing back and forth up and down this wall. And she yells at the top of her lungs across the clinic. And she's like, mom, I can't find dad's legs. Like, (laughs) you know, and nobody like thought anything of it. And I just looked at this little girl and I thought, God, in what other world is that a normal thing to say? Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, you look at the shoes and I'm like, these are his shoes. Like, these are his legs. And you give them to him and off she goes. But, you know, it's just that's such an adaptable thing that that child learned. It was like dad puts his legs on or dad's in a wheelchair or, you know, mom has to put a hand, an arm on or a hand on. Like, you know, it's just it's normal because you've made it that way. But yeah, yeah, we've seen lots of kids grow up in the Matsy, which have been so, so fun to watch. (laughs) Yeah. Even like Kaylee. So the first thing she said to dad when uh, we saw him like in person again, it had been uh, just about a month since injury. And we were we flew to Texas. The first thing she said was she looked at him and said, next time, watch where you're walking. Yeah. And it's so matter of fact. So yeah. matter of fact, like you should have been like, more careful, and- dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly what it was. And, you know, as a kid, you know, these situations are so hard, um, but you find ways to deal with it. Mm-hmm. It's all, it's all you, you find- know. You don't know any different, you know, yeah, like it exactly. just becomes your normal. Especially because you grow up in it. Like, you know, that little girl, she grew up in the hospital more or less. And she grew up knowing, okay, well, my dad doesn't have legs, so I got to go get him for him. Like, you know, that's just, that's my job in the morning. Like, yeah, like as easy as, you know, like picking up the paper or turning on the TV or getting cereal or coffee or whatever. Like, it's just, it's an extra step, but that's what we do. But it's good. It makes resilient kids. (laughs) Yes, for sure. So if you have any last um, thoughts, I don't, I feel like we covered a lot of stuff. Yes. <laughs> I think that, you know, this doing these stories that you're doing with this podcast is just, you know, you're going to meet a lot of resilient people. The, if there's yeah. one thing that comes out of the military, it's, you know, simper gumby, as the Marines say, like, it's to be flexible and resilient because, you know, your orders aren't final until you're already there or whatever. You just are so used to things changing and being transient. And, you know, you, this pandemic world, I think has been the easiest on the military population because it's like, oh yeah, we get it. Like, you know, stay home or you don't know when you're going to be moving or traveling or doing this or that. And, you know, so I hope that you you get to meet lots of people like that as you do this. And I hope that your listeners just get to appreciate that about about this community and these people that you're going to be, you know, sort of rotating through here. Yeah. And that means a lot because, you know, military children's, their stories are not shared a lot. Uh, not at all. And, you know, they don't want to share their stories. I've found a lot, too. It's hard to... Well, not that they don't want to. It's just hard to share them because for a lot of people, it's such an emotional experience because, you know, 
you have these friends for like a couple months and then they're gone and or you're gone and then you know you have to learn to live through it and you know it's so important that these stories get out there because you know military life isn't just sunshines and rainbows like you know it looks like you know and you you know I hope you get to talk to them years down the road too which I feel like is different from my point of view that I have now in my 30s is far different than if I would have talked to you at you know, 15 when my like life dream was to go to four years at one high school. Like, you know, it just, the rawness of it wears off and the appreciation shines through so strongly towards the end that, you know, it's, you just look back and it's just such a soft spot, you know, for me and such, I'm so appreciative for the fact that, you know, I have people skills that I was forced to learn because I was uprooted every year. And, you know, it's, um, You'll have a lot of fun. I hope people have a lot of fun getting to know your guests um, through as you go through this and um, pick up quite the community. Thank you. And thank you for being a part of it. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks, Gracie. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into the Graceville Military Child podcast. For more inspiring stories like these, be sure to review, like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. You can also find us on at Grace of a Military Child podcast on Instagram, and be sure to check out our YouTube page. If you are or know of a military child who would like to be featured on an episode of this podcast, DM us on Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week when we hear another inspiring story. Until then.